0: Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
1: What if AI could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at IBM.com/consulting.
2: IBM, let's create.
3: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. How are you doing this fine day, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whenever you're listening to it? I'm Ray Harkins. I'm your host of 100 Words or Less, the podcast, the podcast in which we talk about independent music, talk to the people involved in it, creating it, putting it out there and just all of the awesomeness that uh, we get to experience in getting this, uh, getting into this beautiful, beautiful scene. And today is a, uh, it's a real good one. Money Mustafi, who is the vocalist for a recently reunited... Well, I guess not so recent, like maybe 2016, I want to say, they started playing shows again. But uh, yeah, he's a vocalist for Race Trader, a really, really incredibly uh, important band to me. And I know many of us who were raised in the you know, 90s, early 2000s, hardcore, metalcore, whatever you want to call it, core scene. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But yeah, this was a great chat. We were able to uh, connect. It was, uh, I don't know, I want to say late last year and um, it was great. So let's uh, let's talk about some things that I am excited about. And one of them is rockabilia.com. If you're ordering band merch, you have to do it from Rockabilia, and you can use The code PCJabberJaw that will get you 10% off your entire order. Please do that because it's all officially licensed, high quality stuff, fast shipping, amazing customer service if you have any problems, which most likely you won't. And uh, they've got like half a million items there. You got sweaters, long sleeves, you know, because most of you live in cold weather. And even here in Southern California right now, it's like, you know, high 50s, low 60s. I need some long sleeves. So order your band merch from Rockabilia. There's no two ways about it. They are the best in the game as far as I'm concerned. So PC Jabberjaw is the code 10% off your order. And you must, must check out what Wiretap Records has going on. Because first of all, they're an incredible record label. You know, it traffic's in a lot of, you know, punk, uh, you know, indie rock, just a really, really high quality independent record label. And what they have is they have the Wiretap Record Club and they Will give you for one hundred and twenty-five dollars. You'll get at least ten LPs, guaranteed test press, T-shirt, enamel pin, all digital downloads, member discounts, and more. Go to WiretapRecords.com and you'll be able to check out what they have going on. They have incredible releases. The most recent release, Radar State, who is uh, Matt from the Get Up Kids, who you heard on the uh, the show a little bit earlier on this month, that record just came out. It's really good. He's got a lot of cool stuff. Spanish Love Songs, that's another record that he put out from a, a really, really good band. And uh, yeah, basically this is your vote for independent music and being like, you know what, I like what you have going on. This is you investing up front, being like, I know you're going to bring me some good stuff, so let's do this. And plus, like when you're doing the math, that's like it's like $10 an LP. Plus you get all of this other cool stuff that comes back your way. So, And you can also use... This code, 100 words, that's the number 100 words, and that will give you a $15 discount. So please do that. Support independent music and wiretap records. So about me, yes, thank you for asking. I appreciate that because I know so many of you are, are uh, always concerned about me. No, <laughs> you're not always concerned about me, but you're like, yo, what's been happening? Um, things have been good as of late. I've been, uh, you know, the, the job stresses are, are dying a little bit down. I recently got a, uh, you know, a sort of promotion in a way where I'm now working in the uh, marketing department over at uh, Stitcher. If you are listening to it on Stitcher, this very podcast on Stitcher, I appreciate that. Thank you. But uh, yeah, I get to work in the marketing department now. And so I'm learning uh, learning some new tricks, so to speak. And it's, uh, it's fun. I'm trying to, you know, transition out of my old stuff. And that's sometimes a little bit difficult. But um, yeah, I'm feeling much more at ease about things than I did, frankly, in pretty much all of November and December where I was just, I don't know, I was, I was beside myself and, um, I learned a lot about myself during that time and still going on where I'm just like, okay, there's stuff that's out of my control. I need to calm down. Um, reaching out to friends, reaching out to family, being like, I am incredibly vulnerable, emotional, all of that stuff. So, but anyways, thank you for asking. Cause I know that, uh, you email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com and you sometimes, uh, you know, are, are just like, Hey man, I want to make sure you're, you're doing okay. And I really, really do appreciate that. So anyways, uh, money Mustafi, like I said, he was a vocalist of race trader is the vocalist of race trader. And, uh, they recently put out, uh, some new music, which is really, really good. And uh, Race Trader was just a, a very uh, pivotal band for me to recognize uh, my own privilege, being a white upper middle class dude getting into uh, you know politically active punk and hardcore. It was one of those things where it's like, oh yes, like my experience is not similar to everybody else's, and I need to recognize that, and I need to recognize that privilege within myself. And Race Trader definitely, um, you know, put that uh, focus on the fact that I need to pay attention to that. And I was incredibly thankful for that. Um, you know, bands like them, Rage Against the Machine and so many others, uh, made me check my privilege at the door and realize that what I have to say is not very important versus what other, you know, underrepresented and, uh, you know, maybe not privileged people, uh, that normally get their, their voice out there. Um, my opinion was was not as relevant in in my opinion, like through my learnings. So, uh, but yeah, Race Trader was just a, a really, really a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, they didn't put out a ton of music, but the stuff that they did put out was really, really good. I saw them multiple times and uh yeah money was just a uh, a great a, a great hang and a great chap i have to give a special thank you to uh david lay who uh you know helps out with the social media stuff on the show he was the one who actually uh you know approached me with this idea and i was like yeah i'd love to have money on and then he hooked it up so thank you very much david i appreciate it here's my discussion with money and i will talk to you after the episode is over like i always do okay if you if you ditch out you're missing out because i tell fun stuff at the end of the show so stick around You know, I live in Southern California, the Orange County area, and uh, Race Trader was definitely a mainstay. You guys came through uh, multiple times and played at, uh, you know, all of the <laughs> the great venues like, uh, you know, Chain Reaction. And uh, I, I think I first saw you guys when you played at Coos uh, Cafe. Um, and, the, you know, I will walk you through my own personal experience where I'm sure this is echoed back to you many times by people who saw you guys where I was already aware of the band and w- clearly knew you had a, a agenda. Like it was, It's obvious that the band meant something and not, wasn't just, you know, playing music, but it definitely was the first time where I sort of recognized the fact like, Oh yeah, my, uh, you know, my white, white suburban, uh, upbringing. Uh, there's other people that have different experiences. Um, and I recognized that previously with bands like, you know, Rage Against the Machine or whatever, but, to have something like you guys play a venue that, you know, I played a week before or whatever and kind of be like, Oh yes, like this exists in a more tangible, real sense of the term. Um, you know, I, I I have to believe that thought, like I said, has been kind of echoed back to you. Uh, but you know, in retrospect, does that kind of make you feel good that, you know, people say that to you and you're like, yes, that was the point.
4: Yeah. I mean, it makes us like, it makes the band feel really good. and, It should be remembered that, like, that was not the reception we always got. So, you know, we were very confrontational, and it was designed to sort of force a conversation, whether that was the smart approach or not, you know, 20 years hindsight. I don't want to really judge it, but at the time, it seemed like that's what we should be doing. So there were a lot of people that, like, hated what we were saying, right, and were totally turned off to us. And then there was a thing that happened where I would say every year we were together. And then every single year after that, we meet people and say, you know, like you helped, you helped push me in a certain direction. You helped me, um, you know, see the impact race has in our society in a way that I never thought about it before. You helped me see what activism could be. You helped me see, um, you know, the type of impact I could have on my life and what it means to sort of be honest about what you believe. Um, and you know, we've gotten people into activism and gotten people into music and that getting that feedback gradually over time has really, I would say it sort of contributed to the feeling that we felt we could come back together as a band. It, it made it worth it because I definitely lost friends over this band I definitely lost friends I de- there's it's definitely not all positive experiences because it was a band that was trying to do something a little different than just play music and have fun. I mean we were trying to shake things up and get a community that we were part of to be part of a larger, you know, political revolutionary project for justice and we were maybe biting off more than we could chew and that we had the capability of doing. So, the fact that even there's a small number of people that have been influenced even a little bit by us makes it seem, it really makes it seem worth it and made it seem like any mistakes or losses we've sort of taken in our life um, because of this band are worth it because the message was received by at least some people. And I think those people are key to us feeling like there was a reason to come back.
3: Sure. Oh yeah. It makes total sense. It's a, I mean, I think anytime you put out, put art out into the world, whether it has, you know, a, a personal motive and a personal message or a political message, anytime it gets reflected back on you in a way that like, oh, oh wow. I, I didn't think that that, you know, I, I didn't expect that thing, you know, reverberating whatever 10, 15 years later in a person's life. But, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the, the notion that it makes the thing that you are doing all the more vital, you know, some whatever, 15 or 20 years later, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, like, of course we can come back and do this because it's not like, you know, we're, we're doing this to, you know, be a cool rock band or anything, you know? <laughs>
4: Yeah, totally. I
3: mean, we are anything but the core object. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, like, I, I'm sure it's interesting to you, too, because I I've thought about this often where, I mean, this is just recently, like, I, I you know, saw Rise Against, and um, it, it's so interesting because you the, you know, I, I guess cyclical nature of music where it, it seems like the public at large, whether it's the independent music community or whether it's, you know, whatever, the aggressive rock community, there's only like room for maybe one or two bands that have a political edge that can kind of, you know, bubble up and be more successful. Um, you know, like wherever sustained a career or whatever that may mean. Um, have you kind of noticed that, you know, because you obviously have had a very, uh, you know, pivotal role within the, uh, Chicago music scene and stuff like that, you know, is that something you observe as well?
4: I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if there's only space for a few. I just think there's just a few people. Look, you're not gonna, Rise Against is a really good example of a band who's rather political. You know, they're a pretty clear left progressive band, but they've managed to capture a huge audience, probably also including a lot of people who aren't left progressive people. Um, And they're, in that sense, they're sort of an exception. Um, but they do it, I think, you know, we came up with Tim and Joe. I mean, we're of the same generation of Chicago hardcore. Um, I'd like to say that their politics, not that it was influenced by Race Trader, but we came from the same sort of perspective of what hardcore was. So it's not surprising to me that it's a Chicago band. that sort of holds that mantle right now. Um but, you know, I think they were able to do it partly through sheer force of personality. Like, Tim is such a lovable sort of human. Like, he's he's just really the epitome of wearing your heart on your sleeve and being genuine. So I think he can kind of be that, you know, political voice because it doesn't come across to a lot of people as... Um, like offensive in a way it comes across to them as their friend saying what their friend pa- passionately believes i feel like race Trader was the exact opposite like race Trainer was sure i mean we are designed to love or hate we're not designed for people to be like in the middle right so you're not we're not a band i mean just look at the name of our band so we're not a band that you could be kind of like you know, flirting with the alt-right, but still listen to us because you like our riffs. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so, and that's, was intentional. You know, we are a band for people that are open to us, um, and are open to pushing themselves and being part of something that's a little bit more conceptually radical. That's really about Not just talking about a message, but talking about, like, tearing down systems of oppression and what does that mean. So, yeah, in terms of, like, is there space for more bands or is there only one band? I don't know. I'm always disappointed when I don't see more politically conscious bands. And I'm always over the moon and stoked when I see bands that are really trying to, like, you know, push – push justice and push a sort of social justice agenda through their music. Agenda might be the wrong word because I don't feel like it's an agenda like we have a a 10 point plan we're trying to push forward we're trying to push like values you know human values and that's it really excites me and all my favorite bands for the most part are bands like Propaganda or The Clash like bands that have very much you know put their politics up front
3: Totally, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I feel you for sure. Um, so, kind of putting the focus on you, uh, were you born and raised in Chicago? I mean, I know you spent many of your formative years there, but were you actually born there?
4: Yeah, my parents immigrated to the United States from Iran in 1973, and I was born in 1975 in Chicago. And um, you know, I, I was basically raised in Chicago. I lived one year in Iran when I was really, really young. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was very much a product of Chicago, and very much a product of um, Iran, like Iranian immigrants living in Chicago. I think that shaped a lot of who I am and how I got to where I am today.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And your uh, your family structure, like, did you have brothers and sisters?
4: I do have a younger sister, and she was involved in the scene at some point too.
3: Got it. Got it. And your uh, your, your dad, from what I understand, is it was he, was he a dentist or? Yeah, she's a dentist. Got it. And did your mom basically help raise you guys at home or was she out in the workforce too?
4: She, she did like kind of a, she was kind of a sort of beautician. Like she did like makeup and stuff
3: mm-hmm.
4: for a while. And then after my sister was born, she stayed at home for a while to raise us. And then she started managing my dad's office at some point when I was maybe in high school. I don't quite remember. and has been doing that since.
3: Nice. And I, I presume their immigration was, uh, you know, the the kind of uh, American dream idea of, you know, giving their children a better place to, uh, you know, uh, be raised a- away from violence as much as as humanly possible. Um, or, or was there another reason they came over?
4: Well, they first. I mean, they came before I was born. So for a lot of Iranians and a lot of people, the United States is sort of a um, one of its big pulls is it's it's educational institution. So my dad came here to go, for the large part, to try to go to the University of Chicago. So he came here, he kind of networked a little, and then applied. He was already a dentist, but he wanted to get sort of an advanced degree. Um, sort of like postdoctoral doctoral stuff, I guess, would be the equivalent of what would be in dentistry. I came here for that. He came here for the University of Chicago, and he stayed... he he got his degree and then he started working as a researcher in the university. And he did like, you know, he did a lot of, he's not like a dentist in just in the traditional sense of giving you cavities. He's a, a, he's a specialist in, in oral pathology, which means diseases of the mouth. And so he was doing like research at in 1980, right? So he was really, really involved heavily with, um, research in oral related, Uh, manifestations of AIDS, cancer, a whole bunch of diseases. So we, but I think my dad's plan was always to move back to Iran. It was to come here for a stint, become better at his field, kind of take on this new specialty and go back. And I, so me and my mom moved back ahead of my dad in 1978. And if you know anything about Iran, 1978, 1979 is when the Iranian revolution happened. So I lived in Iran for just over a year, and that entirety of that year was basically the revolution. So so I just remember very vividly seeing, you know, demonstrators marching down the street and chanting. I remember being three years old and chanting myself. And my parents were sort of supportive of the revolution because sort of everybody was. Like everybody was sort of over the dictatorship, they weren't necessarily in favor of, like, um, um, Khomeini and the Islamic revolution. But, you know, they weren't necessarily against it either. They were just sort of looking for change, and that was the change that kind of came their way. Sure. And, yeah, so like, but then my dad moved back. So in, like, 1979, the end of 79, after the Shah was overthrown, he moved back. He became the head of the Department of Dentistry at University of Tehran, which is like, you know, one of the two or three best universities in the country, and he was planning to start a life there, but it was a really chaotic time for the country. It was, um, you know, the economy was sort of ups and downs. There was violence in the streets. Uh, There were a lot of the political power struggles that were going on were very, very intense, you know, prime ministers and presidents were getting overthrown every three months, basically, or kicked out. And my dad told me that they were, he had gotten a job offer to come back to the U.S. and, and work at the university. And um, he was considering it when one of his students kind of pulled him aside. And this was a student activist that was very much sort of part of the Islamic wing of the revolution, And he, the student basically told my dad to get out, said, look, this revolution isn't the thing you think it was. It's not going to turn out the way you had envisioned it. And I respect you. And if you really have a job offer in the United States, you should take it. And my dad said that this is the thing that kind of like put him over the top. So, so that's sort of our story as a family is we kind of came out, not because we were escaping political repression, but I, I think all the sort of factors that cause people to immigrate to the U.S., so a little bit of a desire to be in a country that's not authoritarian or more politically stable, desire to pursue economic opportunities, education opportunities, career opportunities, and, and you know, the future of your kids. You know, they had me. I was a U.S. citizen at the time. and. You know they understood that maybe it was a it was a better life for me. so it was really all of the above. in that sense, we are very much a you know a prototypical um, middle class immigrant family. you know there's other sorts of immigrant families that aren't necessarily middle class, but we were you know my, my father is highly educated and highly skilled, and that's the background we came from and um, yeah, so the American, I don't know. If my father ever framed it as the American dream, but what I do remember is that after nine eleven, he really felt betrayed by the cut, by the sort of Islamophobia war talk that was happening in the U.S. Because he really felt like he dedicated himself to this country, and that this country was really going in the wrong direction. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
5: We're sitting here; it's like June, and you are like, "Where has the time gone?" And everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I got to like accomplish all these other things." Take a moment, focus on the things that obviously, for one, matter to you. But for two, look back, be like, what have I done well? What have I done not so well? And maybe I can, you know, ask some friends and family for some help. But where I have always gone to in regards to figuring out what I can do better therapy. Therapy is an incredible tool at your arsenal that you can dip into. I've done it for my marriage. I've done it for myself personally, and I'm a huge advocate for what therapy can do for you because it is a third party that's able to look at what you can do to improve your life and be a person to help you along in your journey. And so I think if you were thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and entirely suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with licensed therapist, and then boom, you're done. It's great. And then if you're not vibing with the therapist, you can switch it at no additional cost. So take a moment, reflect on the things you've done, reflect on the things you want to do, and visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray.
0: Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
6: This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be.
4: particularly one that was like offensive to his sensibilities and his region of the world. So I think my dad even more than me really bought into sort of Americanism at some point in his life.
3: Sure yeah that that totally makes sense. I mean I appreciate you walking me through that because I I think it is you know the common conception is like how I framed it but yeah it's like as in with everything in life it's kind of this mixture of a lot of different things that pushes you in a certain direction and then Yeah, and then then you start to, uh, you know, understand more of the holistic experience as you, you know, as you yourself get older. And then obviously as your your father navigates, you know, raising a family and, and doing everything here. So that's cool. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date.
1: In the hallowed library of Hulu or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts
3: So most people would assume because you are, you know, the vocalist of, you know, race trader and, you know, clearly, um, aren't opposed to confrontation because most people are aware of that, that are even just, you know, somewhat tangentially familiar with race trader. Um, were, you know, like, were you, I guess an outgoing kid, were you, um, you know, did you find yourself, uh, you know, getting in confrontations in high school and stuff like that, or what sort of person did you find yourself being?
4: Yeah, I was so I was um I was really picked up for most of my like you know I guess that's a very typical punk story too so I was really bullied quite aggressively because I was small because I was eccentric so in that sense I was outgoing but in a way that was like eccentric not in a way that made me like popular and um and because I was you know this like kid from Iran and everybody hated Iran because of the hostage crisis and all of these sorts of things. So I was really picked down and ostracized and that I think was one of the things that led to my outsider experience. Um, you know, being an Iranian in the 80s is, I mean, if you talk to any kid who's around my, any Iranian American America who's around my age and was here in the 80s, It was a time that a lot of Iranians were, like, trying to hide their Iranian identity. You know, that's why—I mean, you're from Southern California, so you've known—there's no way you haven't known Iranians. And you know that most of them just identify themselves as Persian. And that's a a defense mechanism because— Um, when you call yourself Persian, it sounds like romantic and beautiful and all of these things. You call yourself Iranian. It sounds like you're, you know, a terrorist. So that's what a lot of Iranian kids grew up doing, but I didn't really do that. And, um, but I think all those things like kind of made me prepare, like being bullied and, but not really kind of backing down. I mean, I got the shit kicked out of me. I don't want to say I didn't get back down that way, but personality-wise, I didn't really sacrifice who I was and try to fit in. And I think that, I don't know if that prepared me to be the singer of this type of band or it's like the same trait that carried over. But yeah, there's definitely, a, I never really thought about it until you posed this question, but there's definitely a, some, some sort of direct line between my childhood experience and my ability to do this band
3: yeah totally totally i mean yeah it just it you know you get (laughs) whether or not you have the wherewithal to to view something like that as uh you know training (laughs) i mean that that's putting it in a very clinical term but yeah you 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 expose yourself to situations and then you're like oh yeah like i can exist in this uncomfortableness maybe a little bit better than another person because of my experiences but yeah Uh, totally and you're not always conscious of it but it just kind of yeah. It's like that. It just happens. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, you know, the intro to independent music, uh, you know, I mean, you've described it in a few different scenarios where, you know, most people that can point to Chicago in the nineties, you know, you have your bands like, you know, Los Crudos and a lot of the, you know, alkaline trio, like a lot of those bands that started to you know pop up in the nineties or what have you, um, you know, Chicago's always been incredibly diverse as far as a music scene is concerned, but you know, what was your, like, you know, I guess guiding light, what was the person who was kind of like, Oh, here, here money, here's, here's a record or, um, you know, here's this, or were you just. Discovering it, kind of just like cool.
4: no. I mean, every, a lot of people have this sort of music guru, right? And mine was, mine was this um, woman who's well, no, she was a girl. She wasn't a woman, but there was a. My parents were friends with this other Iranian couple, where the dad was also a dentist, and they, my parents, and my the dads had probably met in some professional circles. Um, Actually, I know they had They met at some conference, so they were like our closest family. We didn't have all my uncles and aunts, and everybody were um, were in Iran or some of them were in like Europe. but for the most part we were we were isolated we didn 't have any family in Chicago, so this other couple, this other Iranian couple ended up becoming our, our sort of surrogate uncle and aunt, and the kids ended up becoming our sort of surrogate cousins. And we referred to them as cousins in a very... We really meant it at the time. So this woman, her name was Goli, she introduced me to every band i have ever listened to for a long time. So she, my first favorite band was Duran Duran, and I, met, I listened to Duran Duran because Goli listened to Duran Duran. I listened to the police because Golly listened to the police. And then she got me to um, The Cure and The Smiths and Depeche Mode and Erasure. And interestingly enough, all those bands, she called at the time punk bands. These are punk bands. So I understood them as punk bands. And she also exposed me to some stuff like Black Flag when I was really young, but I didn't really catch on to black. It was like too much for me because I was like maybe in the sixth grade. Um, but by the time I got to high school, I started like, so she sort of set me down that path. So I was listening to sort of like this post-punk, New wave stuff, um, like New Order and bands like that, and also industrial, so like Ministry and Mitzurev. And it was that kind of all prepared me for punk. And then there was a crew of kids in our school that um, Dan and Brent from Race Trader were in that were the hardcore kids and I don't know why I was sort of like gravitated towards them but I kind of like decided I want to be in their scene like they're kind of onto something cool and I started going to like basement shows in Chicago Um, and like the second basement show I ever went to for example Los Crudos was one of the bands that played and they had barely been around like months at that point. Right. They, they were brand new. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. So there was this, there was a couple bands in our high school, including a band called Everlast that was like, it's kind of a pre race trader band, maybe like two bands before race trader. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the, the punk scene. And, at the time there was kind of like, you know, I don't know if people know, but like one of the first records that came out on victory record was this band called Billingsgate and Billingsgate was basically from the suburb next door to my suburb. So Billingsgate was broken up by the time I got into hardcore, but those people were still around and they had a band called anger house. That was a very political, um, multi-racial, um, hardcore band and anger house, Actually, the guitar player and um, singer are the you know are Pat and Eric from Dillinger Four. They moved to Minneapolis and formed Dillinger Four. But that was sort of our scene. Our scene was kind of built around Anger House and a couple other bands. So we had our own scene in our own pocket of suburb, the northern suburbs of Chicago, Um, and that's how I sort of got into it. And it. It was really political from the beginning. There was never a moment for me when, when I was really young and first getting into hardcore that there was even the idea that there was like apolitical hardcore. When I found out that a hardcore bands is sung about like breakups and like you know guy-girl relationships and stuff like that, it was, like, the weirdest thing. I was like, it made no sense to me. Because for me, hardcore was, like, writing songs about police brutality, about homelessness, about sexism, like, right off the bat. So I never really broke from that mold.
3: Right, you know. And honestly, that, that, that actually dovetailed perfectly into, you know, a, a question I was going to ask where it was like, you know, it, it seemed predetermined that no matter what you... If you were going to be active in a band, you were going to be political. And I do think that there are... Uh, Pockets in which that happened where it's like, you know, like whatever, me being from Southern California, like yes, I existed within the Southern California hardcore scene where, you know, my band was playing with, you know, Throwdown and Bleeding Through and stuff like that. But I also fortunately had, you know, Ebullition, where it's like, I had a band like Yafet Koto and everything that they do. So it's like, being you know being exposed to both like neither was weird to me but i can totally understand where you're coming from where it's like if all you existed was in the you know the heart attack world and then you're, you're like what the hell are these other bands doing like uh, it's just jarring
4: and it was a like band that i like so for example like i think that first mouthpiece seven inch um, the first one they ever put out that had a couple of relationship songs on it and i think i even thought that those songs were like Political, just like really coded language, right? Like, I didn't quite right. understand. Right. Or at least, like, social, like about some, some level of social, you know, social commentary. I didn't quite understand that. No, this was just about, like, he, got, he broke up with a girl and was really
3: sad about it. Right, it's so, totally, totally. It's like you're you're reading deeper into uh, a song where you're just trying to find the the political overtones, and it's like, oh, right. well, no, I, I guess it doesn't exist. But yeah, it's fine.
4: And let me just say, I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. No. I'm not saying that like you, I'm just saying for me, hardcore was po- like was political resistance. It was political cultural resistance. That's what it was, and. If when I saw something that didn't exactly fit that, you know, I mean, I'm sure mouthpiece sees themselves like they' were, they were a straight edge band, right? They were bucking social norms too. But for me, like the bands that I was exposed to, like I said, Los Cruz was like the second show the second show I ever saw. So the bands that I was exposed to were just so political right off the bat. Um, Or social, had sort of social commentary Like Endpoint was really big in Chicago at that time And Endpoint You wouldn't say it was a political band But you you wouldn't say they weren't, right? The songs that weren't political Were still about some message About how we should treat each other Or, um, you know, about like sort of The nature of being a good person So... Yeah, so when I yeah, it was a little bit of a show shock, and OC Orange County was a good example of it because we were really embraced in Orange County. Like it was always one of the places that we had our best shows in that in that sort of late '90s moment. Where, like you said, we played there. I don't know. We 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 played through there quite a bit, and um, and it was funny because like. All those bands that we were friends with, like Eighteen Visions is the perfect example. Nobody would ever say Eighteen Visions is a political band. It's like we <laughs> have really night and day. So there's something about the relationships that didn't make sense and we were always sort of aware of it, but we were like, you know what? These guys are nice to us. We like hanging out with them, so let's go with this.
3: Yeah, it totally, totally. It makes perfect sense. Um kind of you know since you were so uh, you know politically engaged and active within the context of the hardcore scene um as you were kind of matriculating through high school and you know uh, did you go to college at all yeah i did yeah i I probably one to many degrees sure sure so you know clearly you cared about i guess schooling and everything like that um you know, but then I'm sure as the balance of you know the idea of you playing in a touring band and stuff like that kind of pulled you away from some of your uh, academic pursuits. Was that uh, I was that uh, difficult for you to kind of you know put that on the shelf for a moment as you uh, as you had to you know <laughs> fulfill your touring obligations and stuff.
4: You know what? Not really. Like, so first off, in undergraduate, I was a total fuck up. Like, I was the kid that was always. I would sort of show up to class. I wouldn't take notes. I wouldn't do the reading. I take take the essay test. I get like an A, but then I wouldn't turn in the report because that was a lot of work, and then I get a C in the class. Right? Like that was sort of me in college. Um, so I wasn't necessarily like academically inclined. I was into ideas, and I was into activism, and I also saw hardcore as a place where. I mean, you, I mean, if you were around in the 90s, you know, there was a lot of ideas. I mean, you could go to shows and you could, like, purchase literature, you know, zines or, you know, anarchist books or whatever. Like, it was part of the hardcore economy. It was really a normal part of it. You would go there and you would be exposed to political writings, writing about animal rights, women's rights, whatever it is. So I was really into absorbing ideas, but I wasn't, like, academic. I wouldn't say I was academically inclined at all. Or interested. Right. I got and, and it was interesting because my father is an academic, right? More or less. He's an academic. He was he did research. He's always, even when he does dentistry, he's always like taught at least once a month at a university, like you know, like as a lecturer. So but he never really like explained or motive, like really kind of invested in me having an academic trajectory i think he just thought america does that for the kids because he didn't have that it wasn't like anybody held his hand and said okay son now let me help you with your college application now let me make sure you have the right extracurricular activities you know he didn't really do that for me even though he was an academic because i didn't think he understood that that's what parents of the u.s do like you know, all the kids in my suburbs, like, their parents were pros at getting them into good colleges and stuff. My dad really didn't get that, even though he came from that world in some ways. And I think it's because, you know, in Iran, that wasn't a thing when he was a kid. It is not, but it wasn't a thing when he was a kid then. And um, so when the band, when I graduated college, that's really when the band started touring more. And we did that for like maybe a year and a year and a half before we broke up. You know, we were we were touring. I wouldn't say nonstop, but we were touring more. And then um, and then we broke up after about a year and a half of that. And then I was kind of like, what the hell do I do? Like I I did some other bands, um, but I didn't really know what the next thing was. And there was a woman in our school, and in, sorry, not in our school, but in Chicago. Her name was Kim Noland. And she was kind of one of the straight edge elders of the Chicago hardcore scene. She was one of the founders of something called Chicks Up Front Posse, which was sort of a crew of straight edge women that made a point to stand up in front as like sort of a feminist statement. And they introduced feminism. You know, into the straight edge scene, and so she was really influential with us. On us, and she was a good friend. And she was applying for grad, or she got into, or was applying for graduate school. And I was like, how graduate school? How does that work? And she like, I remember we had a phone call. She explained to me like, this is what a master's is. This is what a PhD is. These are the different fields that exist. You could do political science. You could do law. You could do all these different things. And that was really what got me started on sort of an academic trajectory. So even that wasn't for my parents, it was for my school, it was from another hardcore kid.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, you. Uh, they're, they're the cliche of the, you know, hardcore treating you like family, it's like, you know, there, there's truth in many respects to that because, uh, yeah, people watch out for each other that have common bonds. So, <laughs> um the you know, d- you know, as you were, you know, doing that, you know, active touring and you were, um, you know, y- y- when you, uh, a rove to certain towns, you already, like we were talking about before, you already had a, a preexisting notion and people were going to have opinions of you and what have you. Um, you know, did it, uh, just like you as an individual, not as the kind of band collective, uh, did it become like tiresome for you to always be that, um, you know, uh, vehicle in which people would, um, you know, express their either disappointment, distaste, or, you know, wanted to have a seven hour conversation with you after the show or, or was that kind of like, you know, part and parcel. You're like, well, I, I put it out there. I, I have to be ready for it as it comes back to me.
4: Yeah. I mean, there was a point where, The routine, not the routine of it. There was a point where we were like, so we set out to do a very specific thing from day one, from our first show, which is, oh, we want to make these like white people really nervous, you know, and get them. And for us, we thought of like a moment of discomfort at a hardcore show, right? Because. The hardcore show is supposed to be the safe space for the punk kid, right? Or for the hardcore kid. And so by creating a moment of discomfort for them, it's the strategy was to get them to think about the experience of others and how those experiences might never have sort of a safe space in this sense. So that was the strategy. And, it worked. It was like, it totally worked, but we didn't think about it past the first couple of shows. Does that make sense? Like we just thought about it as we are going to shock people and scare them and get them to talk. I mean, I remember we had played one show and that's it one show and it was in Chicago and we had been, maybe we had played two, but it was barely any shows. And I remember refused was coming through town, and I went up to Dennis, and I didn't know him then, and I introduced myself when we started talking, and I mentioned I was in this band called Great and he knew all about us. He knew, oh, you're this band, you sing about this, you're really controversial, the audience is pissed at you, and... It's probably, like, two shows. And this is some guy from Sweden who's just, like, riding through town <laughs> who knew all about our band. Right. Right? So, um, coincidentally, like, we're still friends and we like to laugh about that moment of how we met. But, um, but, yeah, like, that, we didn't really think about it sort of long-term. And like I said, I lost friends over the band. There were people who were, like, really put off by what we said. They didn't really... You know, like I, you know, I, like I said I, I come from this immigrant background But, you know, my parents were middle class My dad's a dentist we, we lived in a very comfortable suburb of Chicago So people got pissed Because they're like, who is this rich kid You know, talking about all these things Like, what right does he have? And they didn't quite get That the whole point of the band Was that I came from this position of privilege And I'm singing from a position of privilege Like I'm not singing as if I'm the person who's oppressed. I'm singing as someone who's saying, I actually am the oppressor. How do we deal with this, right? Not everybody got that right away because of how aggressive the thing was. Some people shut down almost immediately. So there came a point in the band where we really discussed changing our approach and it really paralleled with our approach to activism outside of the band too. Like, from day one of the band, we were all always involved in activism. We were always involved in organizing protests, working with community organizations, working with radical organizations, um, doing political prisoner support work doing political prisoner release work. So we were always, activism and the band were always hand-in-hand, and we just kind of got to a point where we were just, like, reevaluating, and I would say that was about... I mean, the band was only around like three years, but a lot of, had a lot of chapters in those three years. And I said that happened maybe around like the, the midway point. And um, so sometime around like late 1997, I would say, or early, and I, I would say like early 98, we were just sort of like, let's take a step back and reevaluate our approach. And we sort of realized like we have a lot of people's attention, Right. So now let's kind of talk to them on a, on a different sort of level. And for me, like that had to be done or also wasn't sustainable because also when you're like the lead singer of the band, people think it's you. So we, in terms of our approach and our identity and our politics, it was a very collective effort, you know, especially at the beginning, everybody was part of it. And in some ways I might've been like the least radical person in the band on some issues, But, um, a lot of it gets targeted at you when you're the lead singer. It's just a kind of part of the, part of the shtick and it comes with the territory. And so it was like kind of changing our approach and trying to be a little bit more open, um, without completely toning down the controversy or or the, I don't want to say controversy, but like the sort of hard truths that we were trying to tell, um, I think that became necessary. And it was, like I said, it was also reflected on activism. So we, I used to work with a really hardcore, like leftist organization, like really, they were like really hardcore uncompromising. And I was just like, this is too much. And I kind of pulled away from it and kind of did stuff that I felt was more balanced in its approach, more forgiving of people that weren't in the exact same position Position, I mean, like, didn't have the exact same views or hadn't had much time to get to the views that you had. I mean, I think that's a big problem we see today. It's like, we're so quick these days to, like, call each other out over misstatements. And, you know, and you, you, there's this whole brand of that, you know, people like to bash the SJWs. Well, you know, I mean, I was that in the 90s. Like, I would have, if that term existed, it would have been... Like hoisted on it 's still hoisted on me, like people still say that 's what we are, but we were the band that like we wouldn 't attack individuals. I want to be very clear like there's only one set of individuals we ever attacked, and that was a band called jihad i don 't know if you remember that band
3: I, I do I remember them yeah, yeah
4: and it didn 't go really well, like we kind of attacked them at a show in Kalamazoo, where they were from. And they weren't at the show, or only one of the one of the guys was at the show, but then the rest of the band sort of called us into a meeting. So after the show, Like we went into their house, and we sort of like, you know, we kind of said why we criticized them, and they kind of said their piece. But after that experience, we decided, like, we're going to attack the hardcore scene and maybe the audience, but in an abstract way. But we never after went after bands specifically. Like even though... I think some people remember us as a band that had beeps with other bands. We actually weren't active participants in those beefs. It was, it was, They were all kind of one-sided. Um.
0: Baseball fans.
2: Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
4: But switching the approach was, was a, became the only thing that would have made the band sustainable, right? Because we otherwise it was just like too intense and, um, and too alienating for some people, including ourselves. The other thing that happened, I should stress this. The other thing that happened is we did have success with a lot of people, and we had people that would sit down with us after shows and basically be like, what do I do? How do, like, how do I become the right person, the new man, the person that's now, you know, the race trader that's really defying, you know, the white power system, the white guy who's no longer contributing to racism but fighting it, or the white guy who's contrib- no longer contributing to capitalism but fighting it. How do I do it? And we realize at a certain point that the people who are asking this would have done whatever we said. Right? If we would have said you do it by joining this Marxist Leninist Party, they would have joined the Marxist Leninist Party. If we did if we tell them, no, become a Democrat and you know run for local office, they would have done that. If we said, you know, start working in a soup kitchen, they would have done that. So we were just like we don't have things figured out, right? So let's stop talking about an absolute truth where people can come up to us and say, "Tell us exactly what to do, and we'll do it." Like we didn't want. We thought it was irresponsible for us to to present ourselves as somebody that knew the solution. What we knew were the right questions to ask and the general direction you should be going in. But we didn't have an exact like, lane that people could just sort of like get in that lane and go. And when people started looking for that from us, even though it was a small number, it was a real thing. We were just like, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes a little.
7: Hey, guys, it's Jack O'Brien, co-founder of Crack.com, and I host a twice-daily news and culture podcast with the funniest person I know, Miles Gray. What an honor. Uh, it's what an true, honor! Please, Miles, tell, please. Tell them more about
0: how hilarious I am. Don't tell them about my background in politics as a political operative or anything like that. Just keep going on about the funny. I wasn't going to. Okay, that's fine. Guys,
7: you can come get caught up on what is happening without feeling the life drain out of your soul at the Daily Zeitgeist. You can find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free.
3: Right. Yeah. We're right. We don't have the solutions. We're just, we're just having discussions out here. So yeah, I I can understand the pressure from, from that perspective. Um, you know, kind of on the, uh, I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, as you guys were, you know, hitting the road hard and, you know, touring and, you know, making a name for yourselves, just as, you know, the band that you were, um, you know, the, and I, I do think that it was interesting around the time where you guys put out that split with Burn It Down, where it seemed like the next logical step for you guys was to you know sign to a larger label and start to you know work in a, a different uh, a structure. As far as that's concerned, um, you know I know you guys were talking to like you know Century Media and Trustkill and like kind all, all the labels, uh, the labels de jour of that particular time. Did you, uh, I guess, did you care for the business of the band or was that just something that was kind of like, well, we have to do it, obviously, because, you know, whatever, we're making three hundred dollars a night or whatever, you know, we have to consider money. Um, but, you know, how did that kind of sit as you were navigating all that?
4: I mean, I think one of the reasons the band broke up was because we were at this point where it was you're about to become. I mean, look, we look at all the bands that we were sort of part of the wave of, the, the, especially the kill bands. The ones that stuck around just a little bit longer than us are kind of historically big bands, right? Like 18 Visions, for example, Throwdown. Like, those bands all blew up. They got really, really big. Um, and logically, if we had just put out an LP and another EP after that, maybe, we would probably be a much bigger band today as sort of like we're a band that people remember. We would have a much bigger built-in band base because we were sort of part of the right set of bands at the right time when everything, all those bands blew up together after Truskill. I mean, it was literally like we broke up and then Truskill put out that um, Poison the Well record and became the biggest label in hardcore. Right? So, um, but I think that we broke up because some people in the band felt maybe we had nothing more to say and we were just going through the motions of being a band that's like going up the ladder of the hardcore scene. um, I felt it as like, holy shit, this is an opportunity now where our shows, where we're playing in front of... You know, if we headlined a show um, in most places in the country, if 60 to 100 people showed up, that would be a really good show for us. Even in Chicago, our hometown. That's also because half of Chicago hated us. But, you know, at our peak in Chicago, a headlining show was maybe 80 kids. Um, so I was like, okay, we're at the point now where we could be kind of one of these bigger bands where we're a national or internationally known band. and We're still in a small underground scene, but we're one of the more prominent bands in that small underground scene. And I think for some people in the band, they weren't psychologically, especially Dan, I think he just wasn't ready for that. Particularly with a band that had such an intense political message because it's really hard to reconcile what we, what we are as an artistic vehicle and the business side. It's much, I don't want to say it's ever easy for a hardcore punk band to reconcile those things. There's always the sort of question of, you know, we don't do this for the money, but we need a certain amount of money to do it, right? Everybody has that, you know, does their own version of that balancing act. But for us, we were really about like destroying money, basically. We were about destroying all power, and um, and we were about and we didn't want to be a we didn't want to be a band that had a vehicle to become even semi professional off of say like singing about the suffering of black people. Like it's a really weird thing. It's weirder than and our band our name. And it's unescapable. I mean, we named our band Race Trader. It's not like we named our band, you know, you know, uh, Fight the Man, even. You know, like right. we named our band Race Trader. It's so unambiguous that we are here to sort of stir the pot, but then be like, you know, the band that has this like, glossy presentation and, you know, um, is trying to get to, you know, be the supporting you know, a supporting act on a Roadrunner metal band tour, you know, it's a little weird. And sometimes I think we look back and say, you know, if we would have had that one LP, we would have been much bigger. With one more LP, we would have been bigger and we would have been remembered by more people. And we, would, we would be a classic band on some level. Um, but I think a lot of us are happy with the way it turned out because it it ended when it was still pure, it it still was what it was supposed to be even though I said we shifted our approach, nobody thinks we, like nobody could say we ended as a band that no longer was about what we were started to be about no, we were always about that we might have toned down the approach changed some of our political philosophy but the we were still the band that you watched us and we spoke more in between our songs than any band you've ever seen. For the most part, we were still the band. Every single song was political. It was still about destroying white privilege, destroying um, class privilege. So we ended that way. And so some of us look back at it and like, you know, we ended at the right time, but it was always this, it was always a big question. And now we, now the way we're sort of remembered, I think, is we're not remembered as one of those classic bands. So we're not, you know, I mean, think about, yeah, our contemporaries were like One King Down, we just headlined, this is hardcore. Our contemporaries were, you know, 18 Visions, or, you know, these bands that are remembered as huge bands. But what we are remembered as like a cult band where there's like 15 kids in each city who really, really like us and nobody else. Does it all? Everybody's heard of us, but nobody likes us necessarily, or is invested in it.
3: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, you're you're very right. It definitely is that uh, you know that position that you were in where making these uh, not even making concessions but just stepping into a larger playing field would then start to there are other ramifications that you had to you know consider and stuff like that so yeah i totally uh, understand where you're coming from cuz yeah there are certain things that are just meant to be at a certain level and that's just the way that they will exist like you said in a very you know uh, not pure form but like in a form that is uh, you know controllable and manageable as opposed to something where it's like yeah, okay, we took the next step up and then like, you know, we don't even know what to do at our shows anymore. Like, cause we can't say this because this is going to happen and we can't do this because of this thing. And like all these things that you didn't have to consider before, you know, when you started the band to just provoke a reaction to, you know, the Chicago hardcore scene or whatever. So yeah, I totally understand.
4: Yeah. I don't know. If we, I mean, I'm not sure we would have made like compromises in that sense. It's more about like when you're that level of band where I'm trying to think of like bands that are at that level now. Okay, so like let's think about it now in terms of like bands that are on today, right? Um, you have bands like Jesus Peace or Ear of the Knife, which are fantastic bands, and they sing about stuff, right? They sing about issues, um, and but they're like the up and coming bands. They just got put out records by good labels, and they have to tour all the time to sort of establish themselves to the point where they can be the next i don't know hate breed or code orange or I mean, i'm actually saying G, if jesus peace wants to become code orange right they have to start making decisions that have nothing to do with art nothing to do with their music nothing to do with their actual passion and i'm not there's nothing wrong with that but it's the reality of What where they are as a band they're exactly at the point where they have to make they have to think about not the business in terms of the money but the business in terms of positioning themselves within a scene or within a marketplace and um, that's exactly sort of where we were when we broke up and I'm sort of yeah I mean it worked out for us in some ways that we never had to get to that point because we never got pulled away fully from our art at least not for a long time.
3: Sure. Oh yeah, I know. It totally makes sense. Um, so, you know, as the band dissolved and, you know, like you said, you, there was that, that idea of like, Oh, what do I do? And, you know, go to, go to school, you know, playing some other bands and stuff like that. Um, what was the you know because you uh, you pursued obviously larger degrees and you know masters and stuff like that what was your uh y- you know your vision because i mean clearly like I-, I don't know if you currently are a human rights lawyer or in the lawyer uh, field as it were but uh it, you know I-, I presume that was kind of like where you directionally started ahead
4: yeah i think like i got a degree in middle eastern studies at first because i didn't really know i I just thought that oh i 'm interested i in, 'm interested in sort of social justice and i 'm also interested in the Middle East and u s pol- foreign policy in the Middle East so I go get this degree and at the time, my younger sister she actually went to law school and I saw like how theoretical my degree was and how practical her wa- hers was and the ability for her to actually like I don't know. Do real things that helps people, or at least move the ball in the right direction. So then I was like, oh, I probably should have went to law school. So then I went and got a degree. So I went and got a um, a law degree, but that was much more focused on I want to do human rights advocacy related to the Middle East. And I was older than the average law student because I'd done the ban. I'd sort of taken a kind of like. Floated around for a while. Then I got a master's. So I was older than most of the kids in my law school class. So I really knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I mean, that's what I'm doing. So I do human rights. I'm a lawyer and I do human rights advocacy um, related to the Middle East, mostly on Iran, but I've worked on other countries too. And, you know, yeah, I I feel pretty lucky to be in this field doing what I'm doing. It's not an easy sort of thing to break into and, uh, it feels right.
3: Yeah. Oh no, that's really cool. Um, and then, you know, you still, you know, care about, you know, punk and hardcore where, you know, most people, once they reach a certain age and once they have uh, more uh, pressing matters to attend to, like, you know, real life jobs, et cetera, et cetera, you know, they become less engaged. Uh, you know, clearly that wasn't the course that you took. I mean, why do you still care? I know it's like a simple question, but you know, how come, uh, how come you still stay engaged?
4: Yeah. I mean, I kind of, at a certain point I kind of got pulled away from hardcore and was kind of more just into the larger punk. So scene. so, you know, you know, any band that's you know, we sort of identify as punk and semi underground. I was put into that scene of bands for a while. Um, but I kind of always stayed with it because I think the punk hardcore identity was something, it, 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 it helped explain my, a certain aspect of my worldview that was different than some of the other people in my professional community. So I'm working with a lot of people who care about social justice, but they don't kind of come from this um, community that believes in sort of really an anti-authoritarian and a, lot, a little bit of chaos behind what you do, a little bit of ability to say um, we're willing to invert the paradigm a little. I think, like, when I started getting involved more in professional circles, working around human rights in the Middle East, a lot of people didn't come from those backgrounds, and they had a much more sort of straight, almost business-like approach to the work. And so being connected to the punk scene and and almost that identity, that sort of I'm a punk, I'm a hardcore kid label that we put on ourselves, always helped me kind of stay grounded in that vision of, you know this is really about um we're fine with being non-conventional we're fine with being uh having a different approach that's a little bit more uh chaotic and rough and not always polite and i always sort of held on to that because um i felt like it was a core part of who i was and it was a core part of something i shouldn't lose so Even when I wasn't going to shows all the time, I always sort of identified as someone from the punk hardcore scene because of the mind frame it kept me in. And I feel like if I would have abandoned that mind frame, I would be a slightly different person today. I certainly probably wouldn't have returned to doing this band. But um, I also, my whole approach to human rights and social justice, I think would have been a little less grassrootsy. It would have been a little less... um, Skeptical of power because when you human rights is all about power, it's all about you know rules that the powerful are supposed to follow. And a lot of times, what you do in human rights advocacy is you go to governments and you say, Hey, please act like less of a dick, right? Please follow international law. And so, I've been in the room with you know foreign ministers and deputy foreign ministers, and uh, you know. Ministers of the interior of different governments that are doing kind of, you know, anti human rightsy sort of stuff. And I'm in a suit and tie, I might even have cufflinks on, right? And it's not a very punk look. But in the back of my head, I was still always a punk in those spaces. And remembering that allowed me never to get sort of sucked in and too attracted to that power. And it, allowed me, it allows me as a human rights advocate to be, um, to sort of know where the line is, where you're compromising too much for, for access or you're compromising, you know, too much for just a little incremental reform or for a soundbite from a government official saying they're going to do the right thing. So punk, my connection to punk really transcended my connection to like the shows and the music. Though so that was always there. Right. It was about, you know, the attitude and philosophy that is the thing I really tried to hold on to.
3: Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's what uh, is so interesting watching, you know, punk morph and evolve to where now that it's been a subculture for you know 30 plus years and has impacted so many people, you never know where those people end up taking that DIY you know, discipline too. It's like, you know, it, it, it infects pop culture in ways that I'm sure, you know, people in the early eighties would be like, "What you know, what do you mean? These people that are working in, you know, TV and movies, like, you know, went to punk shows and it's like, well, yeah, it's like, like you said, the ethics that you take into a courtroom are completely shaped by the thing that you have been exposed to the most, you know, IE playing in bands and going to shows and stuff like that. Even if you haven't been to a show in five years, you still feel that connectivity. Like you said,
4: totally. And like, You always, um, I always encounter ex punks in these spaces, um, in different, you know, in different, um, either activist communities or professional NGO communities. There's always like a a couple punks that, you know, exactly where they came from and how they got into it without really having to have long conversations. And like, for example, my sister works for the city of New York in the office of Immigrant, immigrant affairs. And um, Justin from Indecision and Most Precious Blood is, you know, is now a, a, a city councilman. And they're sort of like, they're the two punks in the scene. And he was like, wait, your brother was a race traitor? And she's like, yeah. And, and, they, and they literally have this like political alliance within the city government that goes back to the fact that they both know where the other person came from.
3: Totally. It's a, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Like you, you just automatically are like, oh yes, like I'm going to not only get along with this person, but I'm going to be able to like do some good work with them. And you, like you said, there's just a shorthand that you can immediately walk into where it's just like, oh dude, I feel comfortable with you immediately.
4: Right, and you always like you know, and you're always worried. You don't want to look at like, you don't want to look like a sellout to the other pond. So yeah, <laughs> the accountability. So that, that keeps you on your toes. There's a bad side to that accountability, but let's not discount the good side too. <laughs> right, totally,
3: totally. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the you know the fact that you know this band, along with your, um you know your work of being a father, you know being a family man, like all of these other things that exist in your life, um the you know. I, clearly you know, the choices that you make now are more deliberate to where not only in your time, but in the fact that you need to be cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, yeah, like race trader is not your full time, uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, does that kind of make the race trader more meaningful to you now because it is more deliberate or you, know, you do you just kind of view them as two completely separate experiences?
4: Oh no, it's always a cost benefit analysis. Like every, moment into the band is a moment away from the family and vice versa. And it's not an easy balancing act. Um, like every member of race trader that's in a a long-term committed relationship, whether that be a, you know, a partnership or a marriage, however they define it has had these conversations with their partners about what time invested into race trader means and why it's necessary to us. Um, you know, for us, it makes us, you know, happier, more functional people in a lot of ways because we're putting, you know, I think anybody who's made music knows this, And they, but you're putting a little bit of yourself out into the world in a way that there's a little bit of magic to it. Like, where is this going to go? Where is this going to end up? You know, are we creating something that's beyond ourselves? Because once you put out a song and, a record it's it has a life of its own in some ways and there's there's a thrill to that and then when you're in this political band it's like you're so frustrated about the world around you and you have a vehicle where you can say exactly how you feel about it as loud and angrily as you want like it's a really therapeutic thing and you know, an aside to that therapy is maybe you're you're actually helping somebody out. You know, helping them on their own journey, or giving, making them feel less alone in their rage. I think the biggest role that Race trainer plays now is making people feel less alone in their rage about the things we sing about. And I think for us, that's why we're doing it. It's it's to express our rage. So when you're balancing that against your family, the time you spend with your family and the time you spend on your career, like I started Race Trader literally at the worst time in my in my life. We started, restarted the band at the worst time in my life. We had a really young child, like one my child was basically one years old when the band reformed. We're putting out a record now when I have a two month year old kid, right? Like you put a record out, you should be going on like a month long tour. Right? And if you're a weekend warrior band, you should at least be doing like we should be doing every weekend until the End of the year, that would be the business part of that. That would be the right thing way to do the business of the band, right? We do these live shows and get and and you know get visibility for your record. We can't do any of that. I have to, you know, change diapers three times a night and never sleep more than three hour stretches, and that's going to be my life for the rest of the year. And that is not something that you could do at the same time that you're in a really really active band. Um, and then there's the emotional aspect of it, too, because, you know, sometimes when you have a passion project, that take it can suck you in. A band like Race Trader is a passion project. It's, a, it's an artistic outlet, and it can really suck in a lot of time and energy. We are a really DIY band. I mean, we do, we're, like, intimately involved in everything we do. Like, we design our own shirts. We, you know, one of our music videos we just put out kind of like three music videos and all but two of them, I completely did 90% of the work myself. So there's a lot of time consumed into the band and, you know, your family notices, right? Your family notices. My, my part, my wife notices, my daughter notices, and it is really a balancing. Act. I, when you have young kids and at the same time, I also quit my job and I started working, um, for like different organizations as an independent, uh, human rights ad, human rights expert. So I did like everything, every major life switch I did at the same time I reformed the band and it was probably a bad idea, but I also think that it's all sort of related. It was all sort of about me really defining what my life is going to look like and what, um, what makes me a more functional human being on this planet before race trader stu- If ratio didn't start, I would have started another band. If we didn't restart as race trader. I would have started another band because it was just a huge itch that needed to be scratched. I needed some reason to yell at the top of my lungs. And, um, and then, you know, it just turned out that it happened to be an old reason that I had that just kind of fit a new time. But uh, it's about, like, like, yeah, I think that question is very poignant. It's a lot of stuff going on and you just have to find a way to make space for all of it. And I'm also kind of, and we don't want to, separate, we don't want to like shortchange any of it either. So we, when we write a song, we put everything we have into writing that song. We, we try to do the best version of this music and this message that we can do. Um, at all times and every single thing we do is calculated we don't just make sure like every shirt has a political message even if it's really abstract every like post on Facebook like there's all everything is so calculated with this band it's not something you can just kind of like turn on and off on the weekends it's really there's a lot of there's a lot of yourself that's part of the
2: process
3: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's really, um, you know, there, there's that element of, uh, being cynical and looking at, uh, you know, bands that, you know, reform and do the whole weekend warrior thing whenever they can of like the, Oh, whatever. It's just, you know, play festivals and whatever, you know, and it's not like people can look at race trader and be like, Oh dude, like they're just totally cashing in and, you know, getting like, you know, 15 grand a show or whatever, like clearly that's not happening. Um, or, or, you know, maybe it is, but I'm just, uh, (laughs) not privy to it, but, um, but, the, but but yeah it's not just the
4: case. just just to set the record straight it's not happening <laughs> right right <laughs> the, the exact opposite is happening our bank accounts are all you know de, you know we every time we do something we are we just gonna, it's the the math is how much money are we are going to lose on this right. it's never how much money are we going to are we it's not even even are we breaking even it's always how much money are we losing in
3: this totally yeah <laughs> yeah it's like if, if this is a, a a net positive is us losing like $1000 collectively it's like hey that's great like and we got to yeah. you know hang out in a cool city and play this and like yeah that makes sense but um, but yeah, but like, yeah, I, I think that what I, the point I was trying to, you know, uh, tie up is just the fact, like you said, the deliberate nature of making decisions now is, you know, you feel not only passion, you know, a reinvigorated passion towards, you know, playing in a band, but then the fact that you have to balance this with, you know, adult life and everything, it just makes it that much more, um, you know, meaningful and poignant that it's not, yeah, it's not just like whatever I'm bored. It's like, oh my gosh, no, I could be, <laughs> I'm furthest from bored, but I still have to do it.
4: Yeah. I mean, I refer to those bands as like the do that. And I, and and I don't besmirch that, you know, like some of these bands, they, you know, there's bands I'm like everybody else When some band I really want to see gets back together to play a reunion show. I'm like, I'm always like, Oh, that's so awesome. I really want to see it. I hope it doesn't suck. Like everybody goes through that thing. And I, I, I go through the same thing. I participate in that reunion economy And um, sometimes it's successful And sometimes it's not And we were very clear With ourselves that First off, we're not a big enough band To really be one of those We were never a big enough band To be one of those reunion bands right? We were maybe a big enough band To play one show in our hometown Have it be an event And then go away And I think that's what a lot of people Expected we would do But we were like No, the reason we're uh, the reason we're getting back together as a band is because we have a place in this moment in time. It feels like we have a place in this moment in time. I don't know. I don't want to say like we have it, like it's written in the stars, but we feel like of this moment. So why wouldn't we be active in this moment? I mean, much more. We feel like we're much more a band today than we were a band of 20 years ago in terms of what what we're talking about is the national discussion. And it's not just the national discussion. It's the question. Like, are we going to be a country that pursues, for example, immigration policies designed to make sure we stay a Eurocentric, white, Christian country? Or are we going to be a country that is inclusive of all, um, that puts, um, you know, the... The rights of the of the poor, of the oppressed, of women, of people of color at the forefront of of the values of our collective society or not like that's what we were about, and that question, those questions are so unavoidable today. There's no such thing as you have to work really hard not to to be part to you have to work really hard these days like not to be consumed. Or at least aware of that political crisis that we're in as a society. Right? So when we came back together as a band, it was because that's what we were. We were the band that was designed around those questions, and those are the questions of today. And we, and I think some people have criticized this as trying to say we are one of those bands that we think we're one of those bands that could, you know be the hot band that draws all those people to the fest, and you know, the really cool reunion. And then we, you know, we play these strategic dates to, to like big guarantees. I mean, like we have a booking agent for the first time we've ever had. We never had one as a band, but we have somebody we work with now. Um, it's his name is Josh white. He's a, a state of mind booking. And you can, you should interview him for this piece because you don't know how many times we've told him, we just want to play that show tell them we'll play for free, right? Because for us, it's about getting in front of people and and having that conversation happen through our music. Um, So we don't really see ourselves as a reunion band, even though we know technically we are. We see ourselves as like an active band that's working as much as we can at um, having what we do get in front of people and inspire people and be part of
2: their lives.
3: Oh yeah, totally. No, it's really, really cool. And I, I think that's, that's a great place to be in. So, well, Monty, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. This is uh, great. And uh, I hope that you, you enjoyed it in some capacity too. What'd you think about that? I personally hope that you enjoyed it. I know myself, I really enjoyed that chat and it was, uh, it was good to, <laughs> there are so many of these, these chats that I have where it's like, once we start talking to each other, I'm just like, like, uh, we've never met, but like, you know, like we're cool, right? Like (laughs) it's it's that, that shorthand where you're just like, I've seen your band play a ton of times. I, you know, like what you do. Uh, we just haven't met before. And that's exactly what this conversation feel felt like. So thank you very much money for having it. And, uh, yeah, support race trader. It's very simple to find their music anywhere online. Um, you know, they're gigging around, they're playing some shows occasionally, putting out some, some pretty cool music and, uh, yeah, they got some uh, really, really talented people involved in this version of race trader. Um, just because, you know, they had to update the, uh, the lineup a little bit, you know, uh, well, I mean, Andy Hurley still plays drums, but they have some, uh, some good additions to the band. So, uh, check out what they have to go off of now. And speaking of what's happening, well, no, you didn't say that that's not a transition. I apologize. But anyways, me speaking about what's happening next week, a super, super fun episode because, uh, we did a fantasy band draft. It was me uh the one of my very very good friends Dave Deff who does uh, all of the graphical help on this show and he's also played in a ton of bands and we've just been friends for light years and then uh Justin Smith from uh, Graph Warlock and a million other bands I'm not even going to attempt to name them but uh we've all been friends for a long time and I was like this would be a fun exercise where we get to pick uh, you know within the confines of uh you know punk and hardcore our kind of dream band and then we got we got to pick band names and, oh, just so much fun stuff. So that is a special episode next week. It's uh, really fun. And I hope you stay around and check it out, okay? Because it, it's not the normal sort of interview thing. Like, you know, you, you learn some stuff, but it's not the, you know, normal thing. So anyways, that's what we got next week. And please, like I always tell you, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.
7: The life drained from their soul.
0: Yeah, I think at The Daily Zeitgeist, we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed and can have a decent day after listening.
7: So guys, listen to The Daily Zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free. The show is sponsored
5: by BetterHelp.
3: The hottest games, right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com.
4: High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five
2: Casino. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one.